0: Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you are, welcome to uh, Crossroads Church. It's good uh, to see you today. Hopefully, uh, this last week was a great week for you. In the Manning House, it was uh, really a fantastic week. You know, all of our kids are back in school and finding the rhythms. Football's going on. Swimming and softball are starting. And so it feels like things are getting back to normal. And what particularly made this week really good for me is on Monday, I got invited to Star Wars on the Rocks where they showed um, The Return of the Jedi at Red Rocks. I affectionately called it Nerd Night, uh, Star Wars Nerd Night, and it was fantastic. I'm telling you, it was like a great, great experience. In fact, if you want to nerd out on Star Wars later and see the real Death Star in our galaxy, I'll show it to you, all right? So that's, uh, that, that happened on Monday, and then it all culminated uh, yesterday. Two of my best buds, Jason Feynman and Mark Perry and I, all did a triathlon, together a triathlon relay uh, yesterday up at Boulder Reservoir, and check this out, we got fifth place. Like, yeah, I mean, it was... It was awesome. And as cool as it was, I mean, next year we're going to podium. That's, that's our goal is to podium next year. But as good as fifth place is, that a little bit lower on the list is my wife's team, which was very important uh, that we pull that one off. I told the boys, you know, there's 27 teams in this. We just got to be 26. We got to be one team. That's what we got to do. And so we pulled it off. I paid for the registration. I'm having a good time. And so hopefully uh, your week was as good as mine. Uh, today, if you are new, uh, my name is Matt Manning, I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And today, uh, we continue our journey through the study uh, of the book of Acts. Uh, for the, we've been in the book of Acts for quite a while now, and we're taking it in seasons. It's such a really long book that we broke it up into sections. And really what we've been watching is the church, really the origin story of the church. That's what Acts is all about. is the story of God's people, not just a building, but really the movement of God's people of really spreading the gospel. It began in Acts chapter one, when Jesus really initiates the church as he ascends into heaven. It continues through the book of Acts, through all of the gospels, through our lives today, culminating ultimately in the book of Revelation and in the end times. And so we are a part of what we're reading every week when we gather together. And in this section, as we've been walking through, we've really been focusing in in on particularly this one theme as we watch the church, despite great obstacles and honestly, sometimes because of great opposition, become the unstoppable kingdom of God. That's what we've been looking at. And so every week we come together and we look at the opposition that the church is facing, how it overcomes it and how the gospel continues to spread throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire. And as we open our Bibles today to Acts chapter 18 and 19, that's where we're going to be if you want to join with us there in a moment, the obstacle that we see or the question that we see the church facing is this, is it enough to simply be religious? Is it enough to simply be religious or is there something more than that? In our culture, uh, in our country, when it comes to the United States, about two-thirds of Americans identify as Christian. That's a, that's a pretty big number, that's a pretty large number. 65% or so of people identify as Christians. But when you start to actually look at the numbers and go a little bit deeper into the numbers, one of the things that you'll soon um, come across is that only about 13% or so of Americans actually have a biblical worldview. That is, that only 13% of Americans take their professed beliefs and that those beliefs have any impact in their daily lives. That only 13% of Americans see that their beliefs impact their lives in such a way um, that their faith is actually making a difference in the way that they live. You go even further down and you look at the core beliefs of Christianity. We call that the gospel. And just so that you know, when it comes to the gospel, the gospel is that by God's grace that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, that three days later he rose out of the grave proving he is who he says he is, and anyone who repents of their sins calls upon the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved. That's that's the gospel message. Now, if you are like 65 years or older, about 35% of your demographic can articulate the gospel the way that I just explained it. If you're in your 50s to early 60s, the demographics in the United States, that number falls all the way to about 15%. If you're in my age group, 40s and into your 30s, it goes all the way further down to 4%. If you're 29 years or younger living in the United States, only 1.8% of 29-year-olds and youngers can articulate the gospel. So if you're following along, 65% of America identifies as Christian About 15% or so of the total population can articulate the core value of Christianity, that being the gospel. And only about 13% of people actually live their lives as if their faith matters. See, the fact is, we don't live in a Christian society, we live in a religious one. And the question is, is being religious, is that enough? Is being religious enough to experience the new life that you can have in Jesus? Is being religious enough to experience the presence of God the way that we desire the presence of God to be in our life? Is being religious enough? That's the question of our day. It's the question, the very question, that the early church wrestled with in Acts chapter 18 and 19. We're going to pick up the story in verse 22. Here's how it begins. And when he, this is talking about the Apostle Paul, had landed in Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the whole region of Galatia and Phyrega and strengthening all of the disciples, now, in verse in verse twenty-three, just to kind of wrap our minds around historically where we're at here, that what marks uh, the verse twenty-three, what Mark is being marked for us, is the beginning of what we call Paul's third missionary journey. All right. So the Apostle Paul was a missionary. That's what he did. He went from city to city. He planted churches. He shared the gospel. He encouraged believers. He wrote letters, letters that we still have today, that we still read today in our Bible. From the point of his conversion to his death, which we'll see next week when we gather together next week, Paul went on three journeys around the known world doing his missionary stuff. Uh, Some of those trips were as long as 1,500 miles, like a long distance in the ancient world. And for us, as we read these stories in the book of Acts, it's easy for us to kind of get lost on where we're at in the story, where, the, where we're at in the timeline. It's very easy for us to go from chapter to chapter and think like, you know, this is our favorite TV show and it's happening over the course of a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months. But the reality is, is that when we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, we're about A.D. 53, which means that we're 20 plus years from the crucifixion, that the church has been, you know, spreading throughout the known kingdom. It's been spreading through the Roman Empire for about two decades now. And as it's spreading through, we get the opportunity through the book of Acts to be introduced to groups of people, to see them, to see how the church is interacting and intersecting their lives. And so too is this story today, that we meet a guy named Apollos, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an elegant man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, as we get into this, we're introduced to this man named Apollos, and we're told that he's from the city of Alexandria. Alexandria was the great city named after the Greek emperor, Alexander, And during this time, it was about a city of 600,000, so we're talking like a mega city in the ancient world. And it was a very prominent city in the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of cool things happened in Alexandria during this time, but the one that was most significant to us as believers is that in Alexandria was the introduction of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is our very first translation of the Old Testament. Where people took the Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated it into Greek so that the average person could read the Old Testament, could understand the Old Testament. That these writers started about 250 BC, so 250 years before Jesus, they began to transcribe this and translate it for the average person. Now, the reason this is important for us is because anytime you're reading the New Testament and you come across an Old Testament quote, in the New Testament that most likely the majority of the time is actually taken from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew Scriptures. And so this is the place that Apollos is from. And so Apollos is, is described here for us as an elegant man. That means both in word and deed. That means like, like when Apollos had something to say, he was really good at saying it. We're also told that he was competent in the scriptures. Now, it's really kind of interesting because our English translators make an interesting decision here saying he was competent. Because the word there for competent is actually the word where we get our word dynamite. Like powerful, explosive. Like he was, he was explosive in the scriptures. That would have been the Septuagint. It was the only Bible that he would have had at the time. And when it comes to his understanding of the scriptures, it says that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. That is Jehovah, right? God's name in the Old Testament. Now, that word instructed there is where we actually get our word catechism. So it's not like this informal training, you know, where he's just kind of hanging in and, and, you know, opens up the scriptures or whatnot. Like he was formally trained. Like he was formally trained in the Old Testament scriptures, probably from the disciples from John the Baptist, See, if you're like trying to place as we kind of go through all of this, like who's John the Baptist? Remember that John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. And the divine purpose that he had in his life is that he was the herald. He was the one proclaiming that a Messiah was coming. That God had not forgotten the people, that a Savior was on the way. And the reason that we call him Baptist is because when he saw Jesus, he was hanging out in the Jordan River, and he's the dude that got to baptize Jesus. So he gets the name John the Baptist. Now, history tells us that John the Baptist had his own disciples, and those own disciples went out as missionaries proclaiming the message of John, that God had not forgotten the people, that a Messiah was coming, a Savior was coming. And along the way, they would set up schools and they would train people in understanding the Old Testament. And most likely, John's followers, as missionaries, went out, covered the area, and uh, Apollos learned under them about Jehovah, about the Lord, our God. It also tells us that that he was fervent. Again, an interesting word. It actually means boiling. We'd probably use the word passionate, that he was passionate about the message that he was proclaiming. Now, I know all of this detail that I'm getting, giving to you, you're like, come on, Matt, get to the point, right? This is a bit laborious, but it's all here for us to understand that Luke, the author of Acts, is showing us this man who is dynamite in the Old Testament. He's elegant in his speech that he's passionate about his message and he's accurate about the things that he's talking about when it comes to Jesus, verse 26. So he's in Ephesus and he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So put yourself in Apollos' shoes for a moment enter into the story. Here's a man, highly educated, trained in the scriptures. Obviously influential in one of the most prominent cities in the ancient world. And this couple comes up to him and listens to his message in the synagogue and goes, Yeah, man, that was really good, bro. But <laughs> there, there's something off. There's, there's something missing. Now, we're introduced to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, earlier in chapter 18. They were married. They were tent makers like Paul. That was that this was their trade. This is how they made a living, is they made tents for a living. And history tells us that Priscilla and Aquila probably invited Paul into their house when he's in Ephesus to hang out with them, to, you know, and you can only imagine, like, the conversation that they had about God around the dinner table, right? Like, late at night. Like, these guys, they just got to spend all of this amazing time with the Apostle Paul. Like, that would be a dream for, like, most of us, just to be able to hang out with the Apostle Paul. Like, they got to do that as friends. And when Paul heads off on his third missionary journey to Antioch, Apollos and Aquila, they get, or I mean Priscilla and Aquila, they get to hang out in Ephesus in the church. They're a part of the church there. Now, when we're first introduced to Priscilla and Aquila in verse 2 of chapter 18, it's done in the very formal Greek way, where the husband is mentioned first and then the wife. In verse 2, we're introduced to them as Aquila and Priscilla, but you notice here in verse 26, the word order is shifted. It's, it's Priscilla and Aquila. This was very odd in the first century, and, and it's intentionally done here, most likely by Luke because Priscilla is the one who's taking the lead. She's the primary teacher in this moment with Apollos, which reminds us of something consistent in the book of Acts that Luke very deliberately celebrates the contribution of women to the mission and ministry of the church. Just like Jesus was very deliberate to include women in his ministry, Luke picks up that mantle and shows time and time again how women are an intricate and should be a celebrated part of the church. For example, in Acts chapter 16, we're told of this woman named Lydia who is this prominent person in the beginning of the church in Philippi. In in Acts chapter 18 here, we have Priscilla teaching doctrine to Apollos. That Luke continually remembers women, not because he has some kind of feminist agenda. He remembers women because they were there and what they did mattered. I know that sometimes in church world, ancient church world, modern church world, that we have this habit of diminishing the work of women in the church, but it's not so in the Bible. That women are celebrated. The ministry that you do as a woman is celebrated in the Bible. That what you do matters. And Luke is making sure that we realize that. And so here's Priscilla and her husband Aquila, and they are well equipped to pull Apollos to the side and to help him understand more fully. Now the hint for us that something's off with Apollos is in the previous verse, when it says that he was baptized in the baptism of John. He was baptized in the baptism of John, which means that Apollos understood that there was a Messiah who was coming, that God had not forgotten that a savior was on his way. And even maybe in his mind, he had made the connection that that Messiah was Jesus. What he was saying was accurate, but it was incomplete. And so here he is teaching in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila show up. They go, oh, man, sounds good, but there's something missing. And they pull him to the side. And what would have been missing was the rest of the Jesus story, particularly based on what we see in verse 27, the idea or understanding of grace, that because of God's grace, Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That three days later, he rose from the grave, proving he is who he says he is. He ascended into heaven, and in doing so, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell on believers. And in doing that, he launched the church. That Luke's point for us is that when it comes to Apollos, that Apollos was a person who was mighty in the scriptures. He understood the Old Testament. He understood the message of John. He understood the coming of the Messiah, but he did not fully understand the Jesus parts. And until he did, he did not fully understand the gospel. What's so fascinating about this story to me is that a man of this stature, with this much prominence in the ancient world, has the humility to come under the teaching of a woman. And in doing so, the Spirit honors that and puts him out on great work, uses him in mighty ways. Verse 27. And so he, this being Apollos, wished to cross into Achaia and the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace, circle, underline, highlight, he helped those through grace who had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the scriptures that Christ, here's his new message, that Christ was Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so Apollos has now traveled from Ephesus to Corinth, and now he's on his own little missionary journey. He's going out and he's living his own life as a missionary. So as Apollos is doing that, Paul passes through the inland country, basically, next slide, he ends up in Ephesus, and there he finds some disciples. And he strikes up this conversation with them, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so, Apollos goes into Corinth, he's doing his own missionary thing, Paul ends up back in Ephesus, he's hanging out, he finds these guys who identify as disciples. Now for us, when we read the word disciple in the New Testament, uh, it's a little bit confusing for us, because oftentimes when it comes to disciple, we automatically assume that a disciple is a believer in Jesus. That a disciple is, you know, someone who has believed in the gospel, that they're Christian. That's what we would say, that they're Christians. But disciples just simply really means a learner or a follower. And these disciples happen to be disciples of John the Baptist, which means that they were on the path of faith, but they had not yet crossed over the line of faith of trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For some of you, that's how you describe yourselves, right? That you're here today, and you're trying to figure out this, this faith thing, you're interested in Jesus, you're trying to figure out what the church is all about, that you're on the journey of faith but you haven't yet made the decision to cross the line and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's where these guys are at. And so Paul's sitting there, and he's having this conversation with them, and in the midst of the conversation, he realizes that what they're saying is good, but there's something that's just a bit off. And so he looks at him and he goes, Hey, bro, did you get the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because the implica- implication to the question is that the Holy Spirit isn't automatic when we believe. That when we put our faith in, in Jesus, the Holy Spirit should have been automatic. So let me clarify here. That when we open our Bibles and read them, it's divided into two sections, right? The Old Testament. Testament. Good. One person went to Awana. Good. All right. So there's the Old Testament, right? And then we have the New All right. Good. 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 All right. We all knew that one. All right. Good. All right. So that break uh, happens. And that's a good break. It's a fine break. It's a break that we all know about. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that break is a little bit misleading theologically. All right. So we're going to like tip our toes deep theological, deep theology just for a moment. Okay. So just hang with me for a moment that when it comes to the way that we think about the Bible theologically, the Bible is not broken up Old Testament and New Testament. Rather, the Bible is broken up with the Old Covenant and what we call the New Covenant, all right? The Old Covenant is, think of the Old Testament all the way through the Gospels, and the New Covenant begins with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you think of Old Covenant, think of like worship at the temple in, in Jerusalem. It was the sacrificial system where you had to bring animals to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of your sins. It was characterized by feasts and festivals. If you could like sum up the entirety of the Old Covenant, it would be around the law. Remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, right? The law of God. Like that was the Old Covenant. It was the law of God. But when it comes to the New Testament, it's characterized by grace. See, the Old Covenant is all about showing us that we actually cannot live up to the standard of holiness that God expects of us. The new covenant comes in and says, by grace, it's not what you have done, but what Jesus has done on your behalf. Now, the reason for us to help us, the reason this is so important for us to understand is because when we read the Jesus story, When we sit down and read the gospels, the grid by which we are to read the gospels is through the old covenant lens. For example, right before the crucifixion, right before Jesus' crucifixion, he's in the upper room with his disciples the night before and they're participating in what we call the Passover feast. Remember this? The Passover feast was celebrated for thousands of years. It goes all the way back to the Exodus account where the Hebrew people were enslaved to the nation of Egypt. And Moses comes in and he's like, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, not happening, man. And so it intensifies, intensifies, intensifies until God finally says, look, I'm sending in the death angel. You need to tell everybody that they have to go out. They have to break the body of a lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts as a sign that they are covered by the blood, and when the death angel sees that, it will pass over them that they will escape death. It was this great deliverance moment for the Hebrew people that was celebrated for thousands of years, and here is Jesus with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion celebrating Passover when he takes the cup and he holds it up, and he says, this is my blood. What? And it's a sign of the new covenants. What he was saying in that moment, whoever has my blood sprinkled on their life, death will pass over and they will experience eternal life. See, to understand this moment in Jesus' life, you have to understand and look at it through the grid of the old covenant. What Jesus was saying in that moment is that my blood, the cross, will inaugurate this new covenant of grace. And when it comes to the new covenant of grace, the distinguishing marker is that every believer at his or her conversion is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the mark that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit through whom we are empowered to live lives for God's glory as we share in the inheritance of Jesus and enjoy permanent, unbroken relationship with God. As believers, this is our promise. This is what we're holding onto. That when it comes to the new covenant, the mark or in Bible language, the seal that we are saved is that God's presence is upon us and that we experience unbroken relationship with him. It's this truth and reality of why Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, where he says, what can separate you from the love of God? That when you're in God's hand, when, when when you are in the love of God, what can separate you from it? And he gives a whole list. He says, not angels, not demons. Now, principalities or kings of this world. He goes through this whole list. He gets to the end, and he says, not even any created thing, which means you yourself, can separate you from the love of God, that God has you in his hands, in unbroken, permanent relationship forever, forever. See, that's the mark. See, the implication of Paul's question is that if you don't have the Spirit, you're not really saved. And so these disciples, they, they respond in verse 2, and they said to Paul, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. In other words, we didn't even know this is possible. Like, we didn't even know God's presence was available in this way to us. And so Paul said to them, into what were you baptized then? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, oh, I I get it. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. And so here we're introduced to a group of people who understand part of the message of Jesus because of the good work of John and his disciples, but fall just shy of truly understanding and grasping saving faith. And so we have Paul, just like Priscilla did with Apollos. He sits the disciples down and he begins to explain them the whole purpose of John's message, of John doing a baptism of repentance was to prepare the heart of people for the coming Messiah that God had not forgotten them, that a Savior was on the way, and then that Savior is Jesus, the Son of God, who died for the forgiveness of sins on the cross, who rose three days later, and whoever repents of their sins and believes, believes, that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, trusting in him fully, then that person will be saved, verse five. And on hearing this, the disciples, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so, so Paul shares the message of Jesus. He shares the gospel with them. They're like, we believe. They get baptized, the Holy Spirit comes on them and immediately they start prophesying and speaking in tongues, which leads us to a question. Do I need that? Like, when it comes to speaking in tongues, do I need to speak in tongues in order to know that I'm saved? (sighs) Important question, isn't it? Well, there are certain groups, even among the Christian faith, that absolutely believe that you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Crossroads is not one of those. In fact, as we read the scriptures, we see no biblical evidence that says to us that you need to speak in tongues or that tongues is the primary way that we know that we are saved. In fact, if you go to another book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, you can look this up later. It's chapter 12. It seems that in that church in Corinth that they had some leaders there, some teachers there were teaching that unless you displayed the miraculous gifts that you weren't actually saved. And Paul comes in and he starts asking them all this question. He says, hey, who among you, does every one of you prophesy? No. Does every one of you heal? Well, no, Paul. Does every one of you speak in tongues? No. Does every one of you interpret? No. The answer over and over again is no. And the reason for that is because God has gifted all of us in unique ways with our unique abilities in order to bring glory to him. Furthermore, if you go to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes this, for we hold, this is our belief. That one is justified, that is, that is cleansed of their sin, that their sin is taken care of. That's what justified means. That one is justified by faith, apart from any of the works of the law, any of the works of the law. That when it comes to our understanding that faith alone is the means by which we are united with Jesus and justified. So does speaking in tongues happen today? We believe at Crossroads that It does. We see no reason that God would discontinue the miraculous gifts. And so we believe, just like every other gift that we read in the New Testament, that all of the gifts are active and alive and used to bring God glory today. Does speaking in tongues, is that the means of your salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Which brings us back to the main points of these two stories. That Luke so badly wants us to see in the story of Apollos and with these disciples of John the Baptist, he so badly wants us to see that unless you get the Jesus part correct, there is no salvation. That we have to see Jesus. It's not enough just to understand the Old Testament. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to be baptized in the baptism of John. It's not enough to be religious in order to experience new life, in order to experience the presence of God the way that we desire it through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have to get the Jesus part correct or there is no gospel. Now for us, we look at this story in, in Acts 18 and 19 and we can so easily dismiss this, can't we? Because nobody's walking around going, you know what, Like, man, I'm a disciple of John the Baptist. Like In our culture, it's like, John who? Right? Like like this isn't isn't the world in which we live in. And yet, 65% of Americans identify as Christians and I would be willing to bet that a large number of those people are living the Apollos life. They're living the Apollos life. And just like in the book of Acts, so many years ago for us today it's not enough to be passionate passionate and elegant about our message it's not enough to know a whole bunch of bible verses it's not enough to be a good person it's not enough to pop in and to celebrate christmas and easter it's not enough to be religious it's not enough without jesus there is no salvation so come on do you recognize today that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior? And do you realize that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do about that reality in your life? And do you get that Jesus sent his, or that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the payment of your sin? And do you see that right now, that right now, that God is offering salvation to you He's offering salvation to you through the cross where your sins can be forgiven, where new life can be yours and that that is a complete gift of grace to you. And do you know that when you receive that gift of grace, that you receive the Holy Spirit, that God's presence dwells in you forever. Listen, God wants a relationship with you. That God's not concerned with how spiritual you are. He's not concerned with how religious you make yourself out to be. That God wants a relationship with you. And if you've never understood that, if you've been living the Apollos life, if you've never fully understood the Jesus part, and you would like the opportunity to ask your questions and to get real answers, I'd encourage you right now to take out your phone. No shame in this. Nobody's going to judge you. Take out your phone, text the name of Jesus to our text line, 720-513-1933. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful to be in your presence. And as we dwell upon these words that are given to us, Lord, it is so apparent and so obvious that being someone who is religious is not enough. That being someone who is spiritual is not enough. To simply identify with some label like Christianity is not enough. That without seeing your son Jesus, there is no gospel. And so today, Lord, I pray that every single person here would be able to look upon the gospel in belief. To truly put their faith in that Jesus is your son. That he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That three days later he rose. And in doing so, as we believe, as we repent of our sins and trust on him as Lord and Savior. That your presence comes upon us forever. And in that we get to live with you. In permanent, unbroken relationship. God, there's something to that, knowing that you walk with us in our lives, at our house, with our children, in our jobs. Lord, as we're enjoying the creation, that you're right there with us, that you want to be with us. And so, Father, for those of us who have believed for a long time, I pray that you would remind us to center our lives around the gospel. And for those who are on the journey of faith, Lord, I pray today brings a little bit more clarity, inspires some questions that they could ask in order to truly understand the Jesus part of all of this. It's in that powerful name of Jesus that I do pray, amen. We come together as a church around communion like we do most every week. And maybe with this week, reminding ourselves with a little bit more significance that it was the body of the Lamb of God that was broken on that cross. And as his blood spilt out, it was the mark of the new covenants that anybody covered by the blood of the Lamb, that death would pass over them and that they would experience nothing but eternal life now and forever. And so today... As a family, as a church, as a group of believers, we eat and we remember. And we drink knowing that this is the new covenant of grace that is offered freely to every single one of us. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we sing in worship. If you need prayer, you can make your way to the banner online, you can click the button, but we're gonna sing to our savior Jesus, the one who makes all of this possible. We lift our hands, we lift our voices to him today.